from youth, traditionally boys are conditioned not to give into emotions, to suck it up, to hide emotions and to, you know, to be protectors and providers, right? So when boys are victimized, they're confused about the fact that they're victims. The biggest thing is the grooming process. So we know that over 95-ish percent of sexual abuse is perpetuated by someone the family knows and loves, typically. So during that grooming process, the offender is winning the affection of their potential victim, creating a relationship with them, and everything is non-sexual at that point. So the victim is establishing genuine affection for their offenders, right? So the offender will typically groom the child prior to their age of preference. If it's a preferential child molester, they will say befriend the boy when he's 10, but they won't offend against him until he's 12, right? So it leaves the boy completely confused about whether or not they're willing participants because they actually liked their offenders. When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what He has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. Dr. Kelly Palfi is a registered psychologist working in private practice in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Of the many ways she helps to bring healing into the lives of her clients, there was one aspect that I wanted to bring to my listeners today, and that is the ignored topic of male survivors of adult or childhood sexual abuse. What are the signs that a wife might need to be aware of should her husband be a survivor of sexual abuse? How can she protect her sons and ultimately her daughters, too, from sexual abuse, especially since the statistics show that 90 percent. And I'm not telling you this to put fear in your heart. I'm telling you this so that you can be as shrewd as a snake and yet innocent like a dove. The statistics show 90 percent of sexual abuse is perpetrated by a family member, someone you trust, the coach, the youth pastor, the neighbor's son, someone who has gained your trust and the trust of your child. For the first 20, 25 minutes, Kelly and I talk about her journey to her PhD in psychology, why the interest in helping men find wholeness and healing after sexual abuse. Granted, that's not her only focus in her practice, but after hearing her story, I could see why she could relate, not only from her own hesitation to report her abusers because of the merciless bullying she was given in her work environment, but also because of what she saw day in and day out as she served her community as part of the Royal Mounted Canadian Police. Dr. Palfi has written a book, Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. And in our conversation, she shared several more resources. All those links will be in the show notes. Also on Dr. Palfi's website, she has a resource link, which you'll find educational videos. There's several different resources and information, but there are some videos on there. There are personal stories of abuse and healing, how PTSD relates to sexual trauma, the truth about unwanted arousal, and several more. You'll find that Dr. Palfi does not sidestep the uncomfortable issue, the tough, unspoken questions, and nor does she avoid addressing the internal struggle. Pardon me. Wives, if you feel that your husband is showing some of the signs that Dr. Palfi and I talk about, my first suggestion to you, heart to heart, is take your concerns directly to God because no one knows your husband better than God. No one knows what he's been through, what he's endured, how he processes those things. And so God can give you clarity and direction. And as a side note, maybe you can't identify the signs that Dr. Palfi gives you but you know something's wrong. Maybe there's a disconnect with intimacy or just a disconnect in general, and you can't seem to put your finger on it. And to be quite honest, it could manifest in a variety of ways. There, part of uh, what Dr. Palfi shares with us in this conversation is a man who began limping and then the limp got really bad. And so that's how it manifested itself until it was brought to his attention that, that the core of that was his sexual abuse. 
So again, it you might not be able to put your finger on an actual manifestation that, that shows up. Um, but whether you can, in either situation, whether you can identify it or only suspect it, there is a practical side, which is therapy. And then there's the spiritual side, which is prayer. Educate yourself and consult the Lord for discernment and understanding and ask God to prepare your husband's heart for the conversation. Because if you're being led to be the first one to verbalize what you suspect, have courage. You're in a unique position to usher in healing for your husband. Not that you're responsible for it, but you could open the conversation, open the doors, and you'll lift a weight that you have no idea of the heaviness of. The beauty of that, you win and your family wins because the head of your household is walking in wholeness and healing. You want to talk about a whole new level of connectedness with your spouse. Let's start educating ourselves right now. Listen in as Dr. Kelly Palfi gives us insight into her professional experience. Welcome, Kelly. I'm so glad that we found each other because this conversation about male sexual abuse is so important. One in six boys are abused at a very young age, and you can give us the statistics on that. But that sad reality, compounded by the fact that no one ever talks about it, lends itself to victims staying victims for a very long time. Then let's heap this fact on top, and that's that if the victim never processes what happened and finds healing, they carry those painful experiences with them into their roles as a husband, a dad, a grandpa, an uncle. I want to spend the bulk of our time on how to prevent sexual abuse, how unresolved abuse manifests itself. And then I want to provide ways to find healing. But first, let's understand why you obtained your PhD in counseling psychology with a specific focus on male abuse. Let's start with a quick overview of your role while in the RCMP. Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I did 13 years of active duty. My second to last posting was with the Integrated Child Sexual Exploitation Unit. So we developed the unit in response to crimes that were already being committed. We were overwhelmed with the need for a unit like that. So we established the unit. I was part of the inception. And our mandate was to investigate those crimes, plus train the other officers in the jurisdiction of British Columbia in how to investigate those crimes as well. Briefly, what happened was the U.S. Postal Service and Department of Homeland Security had collaborated on suspicious parcels that were being delivered in the United States. When they did an investigation, they ended up taking down a, a server, which was distributing child pornographic images. So those images were being purchased with credit cards. A lot of those credit card owners lived in Canada. So we had 350 clients before we ever got started. It was a very daunting, overwhelming task to investigate those crimes, plus train other members and stuff in the jurisdiction. So I was being trained as a subject matter expert in the area and helping develop templates and stuff like that for fellow officers. And at one of my training seminars, Sheldon Kennedy came and spoke with us. Now, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a former pro hockey player. He played in the U.S. for the Chicago Blackhawks. He's known up here, I believe he's with the Calgary Flames. And he graced us with a disclosure. This was back in 2004 before anybody was talking about it. He was literally one of the first men to ever come forward. And he did a private lecture to us and he was just shaking, like literally shaking. And he said, I can't believe I'm here in a room full of cops. That really caught my attention because I knew he meant it. I knew he had something really important to say. And so he started telling us about his sexual abuse, which was at the hands of his coach, Graham James. And it began at, right from the inception of his hockey career. He talked about the reasons why he hadn't disclosed. Now, those were things like his hockey career was pulling his family out of poverty, Everybody was super proud of him. He knew he had the expertise to make it pro and his abuser had the means to get him there. The other thing that really blew my mind, like honestly, Sherry, I could not believe this. He said he felt that people knew but did nothing. And I was just floored by that. I could not believe that. But it had such an impact on me. It really started to make a lot of questions that I had in the past make sense. Like, Prior to being a police officer, I'd been a corrections officer. It's a common stepping stone, you know. And I remember questioning, like, why are there so many men in prison compared to women? And then it was like, God just turned the lights on for me. It was like, I started to see it. There are literally no supports, no resources for male survivors. And, you know, the way society kind of has biases against men, there's just no room at the time for men to be victims, right? 
So that got my attention. But then the other thing that he talked about, I mean, that really, really impacted me. And I remember feeling like, wow, I wish I could do more. Like I've got this huge venue working for children, but here's like an adult male survivor. And the one thing that really, really hit home personally with me was he talked about living a double life. He said, on one hand, I'm this pro hockey player, but then on the other hand, here I am being sexually abused and I feel like I can't talk about it. Well, I at the time was going through severe bullying in the RCMP. And I mean, I would pretend that I had it all together at work. I mean, my close friends obviously knew the difference, but I would go home and bawl my eyes out all the time. And yeah, so I felt like I could relate to him on that level. It was like I that little tiny piece I got and it just... I just, like I say, God opened my eyes to it. I just started to take note of it. Fast forward a couple of years, I actually lost my career to bullying. My, my doctor took me off work because my health was just so downhill and I was so impacted physically and I was terrified. I, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I was, I was already started my master's degree because I had thought I was going to be a criminal profiler. One of my professors mentioned that he worked at the BC Society for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. And I was just reminded of what Sheldon Kennedy had discussed. To be honest, that is what brought me to my knees was this, um, I always believed in the Lord, but I, I wasn't real active in my faith prior to my world falling apart. <laughs> so that's literally what brought me to my knees. I was just like, Lord, I need something to be passionate about, you know? And he highlighted this male survivors issue that I'd learned about. And it was literally what brought me out of my depression <laughs> was having a purpose, having a meaning, having something important to do, you know? And that is where God meets us. Because I think there's a place that all of us will come to our knees and ask the Lord, maybe turn back to the Lord and say, help. I know I had this conversation with him. I have run this vehicle off the road. It's upside down. Wheels are up. Smoke's coming from every part. I need your help to get it back on track. And not only that, you want something to be passionate about in life. And who better to give you that than the one who created you, right? Honestly, Sherry, I had, I was raised united, but never took my faith seriously prior to, you know, my world falling apart. Yes. I literally found myself on my knees saying exactly that God take the wheel. I've made a mess of my life. Like every door was closed in the RCMP. I would get offered a job because of my reputation for doing undercover work or whatever. And the bosses were all saying I was off the table. And for about a year, I kept hearing those words off the table, off the table, off the table. And I eventually found the root of that. I was crying out, Lord, why would you let this happen? Like, like, you know, look at me. I'm so important in the RCMP. You know, I had no idea what he had in store for me. Honestly, it made no sense to me, but I would not change a thing because other than trust the Lord more and cry less, I cried a lot. I would, you know, I would get on my knees a lot sooner and I would, if I was to do anything differently, I would just choose to trust the Lord fully and <laughs> sooner. Right? If we would just lay it down sooner, there's yeah. so much more peace to that. Mm-hmm. But you make a good point because... I think the best we can do is point our children to God because there will be a time in their life when they cry out to him and he has to be real for them. At least you knew where to go. Like you had been pointed in that direction or it was a resource for you when things got really bad. When I was on my knees, like my cry was, God, if, if you are real, I need you. I had this sort of illusion idea that God was out there, but it was such a distant, far off concept to me. I wasn't praying. I wasn't going to church. I had tried to go to church a few times in my adult life and get anything out of it. It was like, well, why do that again? I wasn't being fed. I wasn't being healed. I ended up meeting a pastor on an airplane and she had actually prayed before the flight. She had said, Lord, if there's anybody that needs me, put him beside me. And she said, she looked over and saw me in my business suit and thought, "Mm, I have the day off. And then she said, she felt the Lord go, get busy. Just tapped her on the shoulder and said, get busy. And that's cute. I wish I could remember what she said to me. She probably told me Jesus loves me. All I know is she had me bawling within five minutes and I was putty in her hands. And I said, I'd love to hear you talk again. And I ended up going to a church where she was speaking. And that was sort of the beginning of my faith walk. That's awesome. So you didn't have roots necessarily from childhood? Well, like I say, we went to United Church, but lots of fighting in my family. So we'd fight all the way to church, sit there, you know, bite our tongues off. I was babysitting in the church. I don't remember getting a lot out of it. I remember questioning so many things all the time, like not understanding what they were talking about. And I didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. This is crazy. But as a police officer, I had a fear of the Lord. I always said in my heart, 
oh, I don't have to worry about that stuff. God's got a special place for police officers, you know? Like, that's I've heard what that, I yes. Have you? Okay. Uh-huh. But that's what I was living by. They typically quote that scripture about the peacemakers. I've Blessed heard, are the peacemakers. Yeah. Blessed are the peacemakers. I've heard that in connection with going to heaven. With regard to the bullying and abuse that you endured at the force, did that add to your compassion for abused children? It sounds like Kennedy is the one that really piqued your interest and you came back to that. But did your the bullying you experienced help your compassion? Yeah, absolutely. And my understanding, I always credit my own PTSD. I developed PTSD because of the bullying, which, you know, some might say it might not meet criteria, but there was plenty of life-threatening incidents during my career that could have caused it as well. It's just like what bothered me the most was not feeling safe in my own environment and not knowing where my future was like financially and career-wise and stuff, right? So I had a, I had a threat to my integrity, which was everything to me my integrity was everything. I always say that if if I'm a good therapist, that's what makes it right. The fact that I went through it myself. I also have since been diagnosed with developmental PTSD, which I believe is accurate as well. Having this sort of hands-on experience, awareness of what it's like to have PTSD. I think in the past, I would have been more of a just get over it, suck it up kind of person. But I know with PTSD, that's not the way it works. You can't just get over it. You can't will yourself to get over it. You need help. I always say I can help. He can heal. Amen. Yeah. You can help. God can heal. Yeah. How long did it take you to report the bullying? That's sort of what ended my career was the fact that I did report it. Twice in my career, a whistle blew about supervisors. The first time I did it because my health was starting to be impacted. I wasn't sleeping. It was like 3.30 in the morning and I still hadn't fallen asleep and I had to be up at quarter after five. So I went to the OIC, the detachment, and I said, I can't handle this. This is what's going on. You got to get me out of here. I've, I've done my time. And he initially said, no, you're suitably posted. Get back to your desk. And I literally almost threw up all over my desk when I went back. And I just went back to his door with all the courage I could muster and knocked on it and said, sir, with all due respect, if you're going to make me work there, you got to know what's going on. And he literally took off his epaulets and threw them on the table and invited me to tell him what was going on. And he was blown away. Like he apologized to me and he, he instantly took me out of that unit. But I went right from the, what do you say to the skillet to the frying pan? I went right into another environment. I loved my career. And even though I was maybe a good investigator, I was not good at standing up for myself. And in those sort of hardcore environments, you got to be able to take a little ribbing and you got to fight back and stuff. I didn't know how to fight back. I didn't know how to stand up for myself, right? I I remember one day my boss was super rude to me and I just went flying out of the room. I was going run into the back room to ball my eyes out and a colleague saw and she chased me down and she literally put her foot in the door as I was slamming it. And she comes in there and she says, why do you let her talk to you like that? And I was like, what do you mean? Let her talk to me like that. Like, what do you do when she talks to you like that? She says she wouldn't dare talk to me like that. She said, she only bullies you because you let her. And I was like, what? I was like, okay, that's going to (laughs) change. You had a valid reason of why you went through a lot before you went in and actually said what was happening. Well, these were my supervisors. I was terrified. They have control of your assessments. They have control of your reputation. It's really scary. And they are the people that are supposed to be investigating this kind of stuff. The police are the one you're supposed to go to when you're in trouble, not be the cause of your trouble. We call it sanctuary abuse when the people that are supposed to protect you are the ones that are hurting you. Just like Kennedy's coach had him in a position where he held his future. And the second time they approached me and asked me to tell the truth, and it didn't take much convincing, but they promised me X, Y, and Z, and none of that came to fruition. But, you know, God had a different plan. I was crying out, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you allow every door to close? I couldn't imagine that he'd have a brighter future for me somewhere else. He will surprise us like that. Yeah. And I have heard this lately. I've heard this a lot that he closed every door and it was just devastating that he interrupted where you were going and wants to turn you in a different direction. But I've also discovered he wastes nothing. So here you are with all this background. You take what you've learned in the force. You take Sheldon Kennedy's story and then you pursue a career in what you've already been exposed to and what you understand. And now you have a deeper compassion for that. Tell me about the doors that God did close. Yeah. For like a year, year and a half, I was getting recruited by mid-level management to come to their units. 
they were saying, yeah, we would love to have you because I did undercover work and I had a good reputation there. And they were saying, yeah, we'd love to have you come to our unit. And then it would be like silence. And I, you know, okay, what's happening? Do you want me? And they'd be like, well, my boss said you're off the table. And I kept hearing those words off the table, off the table, off the table. I ended up getting to the root of that about a year and a half later. That's honestly what caused my PTSD. I was actually dating a Mountie at the time. I'm not supposed to talk about the actual details of my case because I did see the force, but let's just say I landed on his doorstep and I was all upset about what had happened. I didn't know, but he had a roommate and this roommate ended up telling me the backstory behind all those closed doors. It rocked my world. He was basically saying, you're not wrong. This is what's going on. I was just blown away. I went home and I was trying to type out what had happened. I couldn't really move. I was almost like frozen, so traumatized. That was when I had, I knew I had to leave the force. And, you know, that's when I got on my knees. And honestly, every piece of distress I've ever been through, even in my schooling, God helped me to make the connections between what I went through and what what other people go through. I was able to channel all of those misdiagnoses, all of those distressed moments, all of that physiological dysregulation into my book, which, you know, I'm getting good reviews on. So it's like, God's using what was my misery to be my ministry. And that, oh, that's such a blessing, honestly. (laughs) Say that again. God's using what was my misery to be my ministry. You landed on the doorstep of the Mountie that you're dating. You find out what off the table means. But in off the table, this is when you're hearing all the doors closing. Mm -hmm. I'm experiencing it. He basically validated my reality. This roommate of his, he didn't help. He made it worse. I went home in way worse shape than I was when I landed on his doorstep. I went to a new doctor a couple of days later because I was having some pretty severe memory loss issues. Praise God he did his job. I just went to him to ask, is it normal that my brain's shutting down that I can't remember things? You know, like I really just wanted reassurance. And he was like, Uh, no, that's not good. What's going on? (laughs) And and I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't want to go there. And he was like, why don't you tell me what's going on? And I (sighs) fell into a puddle on his floor and he said, okay, you don't report to them anymore. And I was like, you can do that. He said, I just did. He said, you do not report to them anymore. You report to me. I was terrified, but I also knew it was the right decision. You know, my health was, I had severe rosacea. I had a bladder disorder. I had terrible memory loss issues. I was not sleeping. I I ended up dropping 20 pounds instantly. That's when I got on my knees. And like I said, I was already doing my master's degree because I wanted to become a criminal profiler. So my head is spinning and I'm like, do I quit? I was in private school, which is super expensive. Well, do I quit this and try to go to a cheaper school? And I was like, you know what? I got to just stick to what's in my hands here right now. I was taking a counseling psychology program because you had to have a master's degree to become a criminal profiler. God just opened up crazy doors for me. It got better as the time went on. And as I sought the Lord, I would be going to church every week and bawling my eyes out. But it was so healing. That's when I started to take an interest in my faith. I was basically saying, God, you know, I'm not ready to be back at work here. I remember once working with a client, got tunnel vision. The whole room just went black except her face. She was just talking about a car accident. Pretty minor on the grand scheme of things in my world. I just remember saying, Lord, you know, I'm not ready to be out there working. I think a nice place to hide would be in my PhD program, you know? I was like, God, you know, I'm not afraid of hard work. If you open that door, I'll go. To get into a PhD, you have to have a supervisor agree to work with you. You have to write a letter of intent and you have to have a supervisor agree to work with you. Supervisors were considering me, but most of them were saying the same thing. I've already got somebody picked or I haven't picked yet or whatever. So it was not looking good. One supervisor didn't even get back to me. I'm studying away for the GRE exam and I'm getting my applications out there. I had wrote this letter of intent to send away and and I was getting bad responses. And I had learned in school that when you do nice things for other people, it's good for your depression. So look out my window and there's this big moving van in the house, two doors down. So I just went over to give her a good old Saskatchewan welcome. She was frantic. She was like, oh my gosh, I got a husband and two little boys and I can't find any toilet paper. And I was like, I can help. So I ran back in the house and got her some toilet paper and came back out. And I was like, huh. You're right. That did feel good. So then a couple of days later, I'm thinking, oh, this poor woman, her husband's probably at work and she's got two little boys. Can't even imagine trying to unpack a house myself with two little boys. Right. So I did something else nice for her. I took her over this big pan of lasagna. And I mean, I make good lasagna. So, <laughs> so I took her over this big pan of lasagna. I was like, oh, that did feel good. And she was so appreciative, you know. And then a couple of days later, this little part of my dishwasher fell out and we had identical houses. So I was like, hmm. She's probably done with a lasagna pan. She can't, she's not going to dress two little boys to come next door to return my lasagna pan. So I'll just go look at her dishwasher and get my lasagna pan back. So I go knock on her door and I said, excuse me, 
can I just look at your dishwasher? I can't figure out where this little piece goes. And she's like, sure, come on in. So I get around the corner and I said, oh, you got the upgraded version. I won't bother you. And she said, well, I haven't had any adult conversation in a couple of days. Would you like to have tea? At that time, my self-esteem was so low. I, I'm like, what do I have to offer you? But I was like, okay, all right. you know. And so she's making tea and she says, so who are you? And what's your story? And I start telling her my sob story about being bullied and how I'm in my master's and I'm not really ready to go back to work. So I'm applying for my PhD. PhD and I'm working on this letter of intent and it's kicking my butt. And she said, do you know who I am? And I was like, you're my new neighbor from Saskatchewan. She goes, I'm the new Dean of Qualen College. She goes, these letters, I know, eh? it's not the Holy Spirit at work, right? Yeah, <laughs> she goes, these letters come to me and I have my PhD in English and I've written many successful shirk applications. She goes, would wow. you like me to look at your letter? I was sitting there with my jaw on the floor. Really? Like the time when you're a new believer, it's easy to say, well, that was coincidence, right? I was having a lot of those <laughs> coincidences. That's what made me go, okay, God must be real. I cried out for help. I said, God, if you open the door, I'll go. So I ended up bringing her my letter of intent. And she just hacked it. She's like, they're not going to take you because they feel sorry for you. She says, what they're asking is if they allow you to come in, what are you going to do with the degree? I was like, Oh, okay. So I go home and I rewrite this letter of intent and I said, thank you very much. And she's, no, 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 you give it back to me. And she made me go back and forth like three, four times. She pretty much rewrote that letter, but you know, my words, but she showed me how to do it. And so I send off this letter of intent and then my dad has this heart attack. So I sent it to Calgary and to Edmonton via courier, the two main universities in my province. Calgary never even got my application, even though I sent it by courier. And Edmonton, everybody had pretty much turned me down by that point. So they, they actually have this meeting where they pick what student they're going to work with. I wasn't holding out a lot of hope that that door was going to be opened because there was no evidence of that, right? And so at that meeting, there was six professors, including the dean, who were going to take on students. And at the beginning of that meeting, she announced, I'm not taking on any more students. I'm actually retiring. And so now there's only five they have to read everybody's letter of intent, 40 letters of intent. And then they got to mine. And when she heard it, she said, oh my God, I got to work with that girl. So this was the one woman who had not gotten back to me, who hadn't even returned my phone call or my email or whatever. Because Lord, she was retiring. Yeah, because she was retiring. So you got to understand this is a six-year commitment. Oh, wow. Right? Right. I always say God just used her like she's my angel. That is crazy. That is definitely a God thing. Such a crucial piece to what you were trying to achieve. Yeah. And God yeah. comes in and gives you a neighbor. My letter of intent was all about male survivors, how I'd seen that boys and men are victims, too, and that nobody is paying attention to this. Like this is a hidden epidemic. At the time when I was applying, this was when Oprah was retiring. Right. So she had announced her retirement. So everybody's kind of watching her last couple of shows. Right. Well, I think it was. In the last two weeks, she did a show where she profiled 200 male survivors. And my letter of intent would have been on the desk of U of A at that exact time where I was saying, we got to take this seriously. So moving into this focus on male sexual abuse, how does being a man in today's culture perpetuate male abuse? From youth, traditionally, boys are conditioned not to give in to emotions, to suck it up, to hide emotions and to, you know, to be protectors and providers. Right. So when boys are victimized, they're confused about the fact that they're victims. The biggest thing is the grooming process. So. We know that over 95, 95-ish percent of sexual abuse is perpetuated by someone the family knows and loves, typically. So during that grooming process, the offender is winning the affection of their potential victim, creating a relationship with them, and everything is non-sexual at that point. So the victim is establishing genuine affection for their offenders, right? So the offender will typically groom the child prior to their age of preference. If it's a preferential child molester, they will say befriend the boy when he's 10, but they won't offend against him until he's 12, right? So it leaves the boy completely confused about whether or not they're willing participants because they actually liked their offenders. Another piece of that is, you know, the fact that offenders will often kind of weave secrecy into the process. So they'll let their victims do things that their parents wouldn't normally let them do. In my book, I talk about uh, one of the offenders, he allowed the 15-year-old boy to drive a truck and drink alcohol and look at pornography. Well, none of those things his parents would have ever allowed, right? So he goes home knowing that he did things that were 
outside of his parents' mm-hmm. allowance. In some ways, it's the way the offender tests the victim. Um, if you don't get me in trouble for having let you do that, then I can take it one step further. The offender will weave into the process this sort of secrecy, the, the, which bonds them together. Secrecy bonds them to the offender, and then they'll offend against them. And then, of course, you know, God created our bodies to respond to touch. If their body responds favorably favorably to the touch, which that can happen even when they're traumatized, they will go home feeling very confused. Well, why did I get an erection if I didn't want this? Why did I ejaculate if I wasn't consenting? So it's very confusing for them. So they will just say, you know what, I'm just going to pretend this never happened and try to forget about it. But unfortunately, that doesn't work. I mean, it might work short term, but not necessarily long term. So that process is part of why boys and men are not coming forward. Lots of other reasons. I mean, that that actually was the focus of my research was why are these guys not coming forward? Why are boys and men not coming forward? A lot of the reasons are around the bias that we instill into boys is that they're protectors. So boys will do what men are made to do, which is protect their family. If a boy is growing up in a house where let's say there's another child that needs a lot of attention or is sick or one of the parents are sick, they will say, you know, my mom and dad got too much on their plate. They couldn't handle this. I'll just keep this to myself. I'll just handle it myself. They will protect their family or this happened in my father's church. So I don't want my father's reputation to be soiled. They will protect their family's reputation. Or they grew up in a real strict Christian family where we don't talk about those things. So they choose to remain silent, like a lot of reasons. But it costs them a lot mentally, emotionally. What are some of the ways that you see unaddressed or maybe unhealed trauma? Oh, I mean, there's depends on what age you're talking about, right? Like in youth, little boys are often misdiagnosed as being ADHD or oppositional defiant or learning disabled because they're, you know, they're so dysregulated from their abuse that they can't pay attention in class or they're so distressed by memories that they can't stay awake enough in class to learn that kind of thing. So there's a misdiagnosis in youth. I believe there's a lot of confusion, even with their sexuality in teenage years. A lot of the men that I interviewed said, well, I must be homosexual. I got an erection. So they will choose to pursue a homosexual lifestyle. Alternatively, some are repulsed against whatever gender their offender was, and they'll pursue that instead. And then into adulthood, you're looking at things like coping mechanisms such as engaging in hypermasculine sports. So excessive weightlifting or driving fast cars, climbing crazy mountains, extreme adventures because they're A, needing to get that energy out and B, needing to prove to themselves and to other people that they're real men because they have this idea that if I couldn't protect myself or if I got aroused by another man, I'm not a real man. They might throw themselves into their work so that they stay so busy they don't think about it. They may engage in substance abuse to numb out from those feelings or to feel alive because they are already numb. Sometimes we're talking about anger. These boys have been told that they shouldn't be victims, that they're not real men, and that they can't talk about it yet. They see women getting all kinds of support and, you know, angry about the repercussions that have kind of manifest in their life, whether, you know, like, for example, a boy that could not pay attention in school because he's so dysregulated from his trauma might not have got the scholarship that he would have got to go to university, that kind of thing, right? So, so anger, too. The boys that wind up engaging in substance abuse can wind up in jail instead of thriving in the world. And when you say dysregulated, define that for the listeners. Dysregulated is basically when you're so filled with emotional anxiety or physiological anxiety, right? Like it could be anything from sweating to heart racing to clenching your jaw or having a headache or a stomach ache, just feeling like you're racing, feeling not present in time. Like you could be dissociating, for example. You feel like you don't know who you are. You feel like you can't be present in time, those kinds of things. Dysregulation is basically any time when we don't feel like we have our feet planted firmly on the ground and when we don't feel peace, right? And those are some damaging consequences because it affects everything. 
from how they feel about themselves. My mind is spinning at how that encompasses or affects everything about life. Absolutely. Especially if it's early enough, it affects the way they look at themselves, uh, the way they look at other people and the way they look at the world around them. They grow up not thinking that they're worthy and not being able to trust other people, not not being able to engage in healthy relationships. Can you think of any specific examples that we could tell a wife today to equip a wife to identify something about her husband? I wonder if she should have this conversation with him. Well, one thing that comes to my mind is emotional avoidance. I was at a Bible camp and I, one of the pastors told her story and I, I think it's applicable across both genders. She, she had had an abortion in her youth. It was a really quick decision. She'd been walking with the Lord and her boyfriend's family just rushed her off to deal with this quickly. She came back to walk in with the Lord, but she married a good Christian man. So she never told him because she thought he would be disgusted by her or or whatever. So her whole marriage, she would avoid deep, intimate conversations out of fear of accidentally disclosing. So I think that could be applicable to a male survivor as well, right? If they are avoiding deep, intimate conversations, it could be because they're afraid of accidentally disclosing. I work with a man right now. He'd been sexually abused by his father his whole life. But because his father made it out that their relationship had just kind of gone too far, that it was consensual, and he never viewed what happened as, a, as abuse until he was in his 40s, married, and his wife was actually reading a newspaper article about a police officer that had been charged with sodomy. And he went, oh, my God, that's what my dad did to me. And he said it was written all over his face. His wife was the one that put words to it first. Mm-hmm. And she fully supports him, of course. But um, a lot of men may already understand that it was abuse and not want to disclose that. Is there any way that a wife can approach this subject, this topic with her husband? One thing I've suggested to some of my clients who want to be able to disclose to their wife is, well, I get them to read my book and then I have them leave my book laying around because it starts the conversation. Even just say, you know, I listened to this podcast where this psychologist was talking about male sexual abuse, you know, just saying like, man, if that was ever in your past, I just want you to know I'd support you. Or man, I had no idea that this was so prevalent and that would be awful. Like just making supportive statements. Like if that ever happened to you, I would want you to know that I'd be supportive. I'm friends with, with a couple who I'm pretty sure he's never disclosed to me, but I'm pretty sure he was abused. But I've heard things come out of his wife's mouth, which makes me go, that's why you've never told her. She put a block up before he could ever disclose. Yeah. That's just a tough. Yeah, it is tough. My clients, this one that I'm thinking of in particular, I have it right on my intake sheet. Were you ever sexually abused? Some of them will say yes, but one said like, yeah, but we're never going to talk about it because it didn't affect me. I kind of said to him, yeah, we'll see about that. (laughs) Right. As we dissect this conversation. Once him and I talked about it and I helped to give him different ways to think about the way he was thinking about it. He was very distressed because his offender was younger than him. So once him and I talked about that, obviously this younger person had early sexualization and, you know, enticed you into these sexual acts, even though we might not lay criminal charges against him, it was still abuse against you. So, you know, once he comes to make sense that, yes, I was abused, he became more able to talk about it with his wife. He did leave my book laying around and that's what they did. (laughs) That's a great segue, a great way to um, key up the conversation, if you will. My book is designed to, you know, if I may just do a quick plug, the book is designed to support male survivors and to create that awareness of the struggles that they have. What is something that you want to tell a victim right now or someone who is still struggling with their victimization? What is something you would want to say to them right now? First off, it's not your fault. You're not responsible for your abuse. Um, And second off, there is help out there. Tell someone and these aren't my words. These are one of my participants' words. He says, if you don't get the response you want, find someone else and tell them. Right. That's good. Yeah. That's good. There is support out there. Since this is a topic that is rarely talked about, is there help that's readily available? Where can they find help? More and more therapists are getting trained or becoming aware of men as victims. I think 10 years ago, when I was a police officer, I had no idea how prevalent it was. Even when it was right in front of me, we still didn't recognize it because the boys looked like they were having a good time. So we did not categorize it as abuse, right? Which is also part of why I decided to pursue this because I was supposed to be the expert and I missed it. 
any sexual assault center now is well aware that males are victims too. In the U.S., there's organizations like One in Six, so number one in six, and they have links where you can find therapists that do specialize in male survivors of sexual abuse. There's another organization called MaleSurvivor.org. And then in Chicago, I know I'm um, collaborating with Dr. Robert Marshall. He's developing a documentary and he's got like men's groups and I know he's taking his show on the road. So, I mean, there, you know, there are agencies. You just got to kind of Google and find them now. We were talking about the damaging consequences, the emotional toll that's devastating, and then the social and the economical uh, consequences. And you touched on a lot of them. And there's the conversion disorders. Is that when they say they think they're homosexual? Is that what they mean by conversion disorders? The way I understand conversion disorder is like a somatic disorder. So it'd be you convert what was a physical trauma. It becomes a memory. For example, in my book, one of the guys had a drinking problem from the day he was abused. He started drinking. And then after a second deal, he quit cold turkey and he got very dysregulated, suicidal ideations and stuff like that. He had joined AA and he was seeing top neurologists, top psychiatrists in New York, like the best of the best. And they were trying to figure out what was going on with him. And while he was in the hospital, he developed this really peculiar limp. So we also call them a somatoform disorder. So developed a peculiar limp, and then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Meanwhile, he's not using alcohol anymore, which was his coping mechanism that was keeping his trauma buried. He's working with a top psychiatrist, top neurologist, and he was just merely updating his AA sponsor as to the work he was doing. And his AA sponsor asked him, tell me about the first drink you ever had. And all of his memories just came flooding back to him. And miraculously, the limp went away. The limp was really bad. It got to the point where he couldn't walk properly. So that's what I know as a conversion disorder. Which makes me think of this. The body tries to process what the mind wants to block out. So the body pays for it in physical conditions. Or have you seen some of that manifest physical health decline? I mean, even in myself, right? My body was telling me to get out of the RCMP way before I ever did, probably like seven years before I did, right? And that is something that I tell my own clients is that one of the first phases of treating trauma is you need to get you to a safe environment because we're not going to we're not going to get you back to a state of regulation if you keep being abused, if you keep being traumatized, whether that's exposure to traumatic events or bullying or, or what have you, sexual abuse. I have seen that. And they say a lot of uh, physical disorders that are common in women like fibromyalgia and stuff like that. There's, there's ideas that they could be trauma-based. I often say memory loss and dissociation are like a gift from the Lord, to be honest, because what these children are experiencing is unbearable. So it's like the Lord created this piece in the brain that handles that abuse, so to speak. And that's not to say it's right. It isn't right. But God even wants to be with, you know, he wants to be with the victims, too. Even if even if he doesn't intervene and stop the abuse right there and then he's created this way for the brain to go somewhere else. This dissociation, I think dissociation is a necessary and beautiful thing in the moment when it's needed. Unfortunately, it becomes a way of life and it, those neural pathways, they get well-worn. And even when the abuse has stopped, the brain will continue to go into that place. So there has to be help to stop that process from continuing to happen. And, you know, therapy can help work through those traumas so that victims don't need to do that anymore and they can live in reality. But I do see memory loss and dissociation as a, as a gift. <laughs> when I think about what you've seen, the stories you've heard and what you saw while you were on the force, what are some of the tough questions that you've had for God? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, first off, why'd you let this happen? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that's always but, the first one. Like, where were yeah, you? Then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've asked him not to, where were you? I waited a few years, but I got that answer. Um, I've heard, why doesn't God intervene? I'm sure you're familiar with Joyce Myers, right? I've heard her say that I'm not sure I'd change anything just because of how God's used me because of what I went through, right? And I would say I feel the same. I didn't have a very good upbringing, lots of fighting and, and just grew up with no self-worth, no self-confidence, no ability to advocate for myself. I came out fighting, no problem there, but no healthy relational skills. You said you asked him, where were you or why did you mm-hmm. let that happen? But you said you got yeah. the answer. What was yeah. the answer? I'd gone to this class in the States at this awesome church in Redding, California, Bethel. And then they were saying, ask the Lord where he was in your youth. And I was asking and not getting these answers, not getting these answers at all. And then fast forward, probably two, three years later, I was, I was in a church service and this 
fellow behind me had his daughter standing on the back of my chair and he was just telling her, Jesus loves you so much. Jesus just loves you. He's just whispering this to her and singing this over her. And I just remember being so jealous saying, what would my life have been like if anybody would have spoke to me like that, right? Like how kindly and just telling me I was loved instead of telling me I was too much and to shut up and stuff like that. And God gave me the answer. He said to me, I was in the flame and I was in the snow. I remember when I was a kid, I used to I used to have these mucklucks and I'd run up and down the alley in the snow and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was speaking in tongues. I just thought I had this squirrel language of my own, but I was, I was speaking in tongues and it was comforting. And I would stand by this burn barrel where we burned our garbage and I would just stand there and watch the flames and stuff. So he was telling me that I was there with you. And I had a dog that was my source of love as well. So I know that that was a gift from the Lord. Yeah. He allowed me to be brought up in a pretty dysfunctional environment, but I still really believe that God's going to replace everything that the locust has eaten, eaten, you know, I mean, he has in my career, I've been paid back double for everything I ever went through. Amen. <laughs> I'm actually really glad that the question, why did you allow this to happen? And this whole idea that my happiness, I thought was going to come from some other source. I'm really glad that I got to this place of like actually truly feeling joy and liking myself and that kind of, and that not being associated to a, a, a relationship, that that comes from the Lord. I remember when I started my PhD and I really dove into my faith and, you know, one of the things they say, love thy neighbor as you love, love yourself. And I was like, well, I don't even like myself. I hate my neighbor and I hate me, you know? And so I'm like, praying, Lord, please help me to love myself the way you love me, you know, or even just a fraction of that. How did you rewrite some of that? Because I've had that same struggle, but how do you rewrite the lies of our childhood that we create this lens to look at life through? How do you heal one of the messages that I always got in my youth was that I was too much. I hate to say it, but my mom used to always just tell me to shut up, like shut up for once. And I mean, yeah, I was a chatterbox. We can probably tell it's not hard, to, right? But I was completely dysregulated because of my environment. I remember saying to the Lord, God, you and I both know I got a big mouth and Lord, probably you can't even tame that. So can we just agree that you'll use it for good? So rewriting that, that lie that I'm too much and saying, okay, God, I have, a, I have a lot to say. Give me a good platform. Let it be to your glory. I mean, it's still a work in progress. I'm not done, right? But it's beautiful to look at the way he brings all these things together, like this beautiful quilt. If we knew as adults the role that childhood abuse plays on us, what is it that you want to connect for us so that we can potentially recognize it sooner and run to healing versus run from? As parents, I would say don't ignore gut instincts, right? There's this thing called willful blindness. Have you heard of that term? I have not. So there's a book by Margaret Heffernan called Willful Blindness. Let's say you see something where, like, for example, in my high school, half my teachers were sleeping with my fellow classmates. And I mean, people in the community knew about it. Everybody just kind of went, oh, that's okay. Or you suspect a boy on the hockey team, let's say he's being bullied about being the coach's little whipping boy or his, um, his whatever you want to call it. And you just decide that's just kids being kids, but you have this gut instinct that says, mm, maybe not. My word would be don't ignore that gut instinct because Research shows that we want to be peacemakers. Basically, our brain says, oh, if that was true, it would be too awful. And it could get messy for me if I get involved. So I'm just going to pretend that's just a figment of my imagination. But that is how it's getting perpetuated, right? Go back to what I said before. 90 plus percent of all abuse is perpetuated by someone the child knows and loves. So we cannot ignore those gut instincts. We have to act on them no matter the cost, because the cost on the victim is too great. Male suicide is 13.5 times higher than female suicide. Male wow. drug abuse is 30 or 40% higher. And male accidental overdose is also around 40% higher than females. So I don't think that's a coincidence, right? We have to start paying better attention. What can a parent do or someone who is picking up on something in their gut? What is the best way to approach that? How can you, I won't say rock the boat as little as possible, because when you're trying to bring the yeah. truth forward, a lot of people don't want to hear the truth. So what's the best way to actually get somebody's attention? I would say create a safe space, like make space and time for that 
child, I would say, tell them that you've noticed some difference in their personality or their character, that you just want to be there for them should they want to talk about it. Like, and I would ask like probing questions. Has somebody like done something to you? I'm a big advocate that we had in today's day and age, unfortunately, we have to educate children about the fact that this is a possibility. Like, I don't think we have that luxury anymore of ignoring that this is, this is a real thing in our society. Actually, myself and some colleagues have just written a three-part book series. It hasn't come out yet, hopefully in the next couple months, stories that parents can read to their children, because what do you say to them, right? You know, outside of that, something, there's lots of books out there that you can read to your children that will just be educational, like teaching children that not everybody that seems nice ends up being nice, right? That some people are unwell and that they will try to do these types of things to you. And if that happens, you need to come and tell me and you're not going to be in trouble. So creating that safe space, educating children that this happens and that if it happens to you, you can tell me and you won't be in trouble no matter what happens. What a powerful tool to have that to reinforce the fact that they're safe with you and that if whatever the book shows examples or maybe brings up questions, whatever that model is, that's a great way to open up the conversation and to reassure them. I think the big thing is that you're not in trouble if you come to me with this. I know we say we don't talk about sex, but this is different, right? You know, I know we say we don't, you know, Right. I used to, two things I used to tell my children and to my knowledge, there was no sexual abuse. I didn't notice personality changes or anything like that. And we can talk about what a mother or a father might look for if their children are being abused in some way. But I would tell my children, is that a secret that makes you happy that you can't wait to tell? Or is that a secret that makes you sad and Mm -hmm. makes you scared? Because Mm -hmm. if it's a scared one, you need to share that with mama or daddy. I I love that. And, you know, Dr. Wanda Paltzen, the colleague of mine that I co-authored these books with, she works at a, a sexual assault treatment facility for children here in Canada. Isn't it sad we need one? She teaches that there's no such, we're not allowed to keep secrets. You can have surprises, but surprises have an end date. Like we're going to not tell mom about this birthday present until Saturday, but after Saturday, it's not a secret anymore. Right. So you can have surprises, but not secrets. So I kind of like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. So what are, what should a parent be looking for? A mother should be looking for when it comes to her children's personality changing, or what are some other things that would indicate to her that she needs to start maybe evaluating something? Well, like you mentioned, drastic changes in character, right? Now, a lot of parents would be tempted to say, oh, he's hitting his teenage years. You know, that's why. No, children don't typically have drastic changes in character. And I'm talking like they go from attending church and youth group with you to being a drug user and promiscuous, right? That's a massive change in character. If they're previously close, actually, this is a big one, previously close to someone and then they ditch that person, it could be that either that person has offended against them or they're afraid that they're going to disclose to that person. So two possibilities. I mean, there could be other reasons too, but there's certainly reasons to start paying attention. If you've got a child that's regressing, like if they're really young, they could previously potty trained, they go back to bedwetting. Children that are having nightmares can't sleep. And I know children have nightmares, but children that are hypersexual, playing doctor a little too much or engaging in sexual acts with other children, even using that language. I remember my nephew saying something to me, which I won't repeat on air, but I was horrified. And I looked at him and I said, where did you learn that? And that's what he did to me. He said, how do you know about that? And I was like, oh, Auntie Kelly's in the loop. Don't you worry. (laughs) But instant red flag for me, right? I was like, like, you are 10. You should not know what that means, right? Think about it. The abusers, what was the percentage you gave about? They were close family members, coaches, mentors. 95%, 94, 95%, yeah. 5%. It's not stranger danger. I mean, sure, of course, let's worry about stranger danger. But that is like the greatest deception is that it's the unknown person that's offending. It is not. It is the least likely person you'll ever suspect, honestly. And that is terrifying. But pedophiles love to bury themselves in church groups and whatnot because we're so trusting, honestly. It's crazy. If you meet the person where they seem too good to be true, there's your first red flag in my mind, right? right. It's terrible to say, but it is true. They will try to become the least likely person you'll ever suspect. They will be the most helpful, the most involved. And, you know, let's be honest. We are selfish people by nature. We are not typically the person who's going to go shovel everybody's sidewalk to look good and pick up groceries for so-and-so and take your kids to soccer and do all 12 of these things, right? That's not the way people operate every day. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that it's 90%. 
Is there anything else we can look for in our children that would indicate we need to look a little closer? If the child is isolating, uh, you know, the loner, is he getting picked on? For example, children that are dysregulated, which could be because of abuse, are oftentimes a little bit odd. They can't calm themselves. They're not confident to fit into the group. That could be because they're dysregulated, which could be because of abuse. The bully, oftentimes these kids get hard and they choose to bully other kids or they'll be the one being bullied by the bully. Sometimes it's the class clown because humor is a great distraction from reality. If a child, for example, does not want to draw attention to the fact that he doesn't understand, he'll use humor to distract from that. But, but why doesn't he understand, right? Is he unable to pay attention in class because of what's going through his brain? <laughs> I mean, these are definitely not, you know, for sure signs, but if you have a couple of them together, time to pay attention. At least these are some things that we can look for and be hypersensitive about in order to. And then what is an action that a mom can take? We can have a conversation with our children, but if they're underage, what is something that they can put into place that would protect the child? Maybe, I mean, you can cut connection off with with this person that you suspect, but should you have the conversation with them? Unfortunately, I think we do need to. And I know my supervisor, when I was doing my PhD, she disagreed with that. She's like, no, it's not. We can't put the onus on the victim to protect themselves. But I kind of just think of it as ammunition, right? Like, and the, the thing we need to understand about that is fear is learned. Like you and I know what an intention of a pedophile would be, but a child doesn't know that. So we don't have to worry about them being afraid the way you and I would be afraid. We just need them to know that this happens. And if this happens, you're not to blame and you can come me, come tell me and I will help you. I will get you out of that situation. So yes, I do believe we need to educate our children. Another thing, for example, like check in anytime a child has been away at a sleepover or whatever, just check in. How are What'd you guys do? You can say things like, what did you all do? Or what kind of games did you play? Ask those kinds of questions. If a child comes home and says, I never want to see them again. Okay, what happened? Don't just encourage them to work things out. Why don't you want to see them again? I don't like the games we play. What games did you play, right? We need to ask those probing questions. The other thing that I would suggest is like, anytime a adult or older child has access to be alone overnight or in a situation where your child is changing, check in uh, even better. Check. Random checks would be great. Be careful if like if, for example, a coach is saying, hey, I want to take your son away to a, a football game in Chicago or something like that. To me, that's a huge red flag, right? Anytime an adult is trying to get a child away from the pack and isolated, that's a red flag to me. Like, why is he only wanting one? Why not take six of them as a group? Just make rules in your house that where they go at certain ages, you go. Absolutely. Love that. Yep. So we've talked about some of the signs that we look for in our children or even in our husbands, the impact that childhood abuse has on adults, male adults specifically in our conversation. We talked about the help. You mentioned several groups, organizations that people could reach out to to find help. Is there anything else you can think of right now? Because we'll add those links in the notes, but anything else you can think of right now that are ways for people to get help? There are lots of self-help kind of books that are wonderful on Amazon, workbooks on how to manage PTSD and stuff like that. But the best treatment is talking to someone about it. You need that validation. You need that support. I realize that that's not amenable to everybody or or not accessible to everybody. My book is designed to support male survivors. There are other books out there uh, that are designed to support male survivors. My book, for example, I'll introduce a subject and then I'll say, if this is an issue for for you, for example, like parentification, where where your parent made you be the adult in the relationship, well, that is a whole other area that you probably need to address. Here's who's the expert in that, Dr. Kenneth Adams. And I'll direct them to that. So there are a lot of resources out there, honestly. I do think that an actual trauma-trained therapist would be essential. Obviously, coming to the Lord. I don't love it when people just say, oh, you know, Jesus is going to heal me. He does heal, but sometimes we need a little bit of intervention too, right? So I always say, I can help, he can heal, right? (laughs) I like that because there is a practical side to pain and suffering. Yes, God does heal supernaturally. Yes, but... 
there is a practical side to engaging healing in other ways. So I like that, that you brought that up. Being able to listen and, and to create that space and to hold that space for a client and to, you know, for me, it's so rewarding to watch them heal. And that's a lot of it's from listening and validating. A minute ago, you spoke about support. Your book is a support tool for male sexual abuse victims who want to find healing and address some areas of their life. But it also is a good idea that you put some support in place that are people like you're talking about someone who you can process with, who's not going to judge you or hold that against you or be talking outside of your yeah. conversation. How do you find safety. a safe person when it comes to something like this? It, it can be very shocking for people. Well, a lot of the men in my research talked about testing the waters first. So you test them with a little bit of information and see how they handle it. Get their opinion on the matter. For example, back to what we talked about in the beginning is, you know, about society's response to men. A lot of comedians are using male rape jokes, right? Like drop the soap kind of joke, jokes. If your wife is belly laughing to that, She's going to need a little education before you bring up the topic. Um, if you are a spouse and you suspect this might be an issue, one of my pieces of advice would be to educate yourself first. Read my book. Read the other books that are out there about male abuse. Learn the impact. Learn the symptoms. Learn to have compassion for men in this regard. Learn why they struggle, why they stay silent. Because then you can develop that compassion and empathy within yourself. Something you just said gives a lot of encouragement, I think. And that is if when you're testing the waters, uh, you gave the example of your wife is belly laughing at these jokes, then you don't necessarily have to shut her out. You have to educate her. And that would be first Absolutely. educating yourself yeah. and then yeah. being able to educate her yeah. so that yeah. it does change her perception and understanding of exactly uh, what that is. Absolutely. Be because I think if she knew it were it was affecting her life like it is because that's her spouse, yeah. Yeah. then she would have a different attitude about it. Absolutely, Sherry, because the reality is most people think not in my backyard, this, come on. I know that happens in India, in Pakistan, in Thailand, in Philippines, and in those, you know, in the in the tunnels underneath Vegas or whatever, but nobody really suspects it's happened to their husband or their brother or their cousin or their nephew or their son. But honestly, it is so prevalent, one in six. And, and we believe that is a gross underestimation. Like, I honestly believe it's probably equal to females, if not greater. There's a saying that we have that no one wants to talk about male sexual abuse, least of all the victims themselves. That's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. Because there's, God has freedom for us. God has yeah. healing. God comes into these places where nobody else can reach that kind of pain. Yeah. And he pours his salve on that and his presence and his love. And it brings you into this place you never imagined you would be. And how precious, I've never had sexual abuse, but my childhood was crazy. It was crazy. I, the best way I describe it is I could never put my feet on anything solid. But he comes in and rewrites yeah. those lies and those experiences with the truth. I'm not saying that yeah. it wasn't my reality, but the truth is what he writes over it and, and gets rid of it. And pain. the truth is you deserved better. The truth is you are lovable. You deserved love. You deserved better, right? Mm -hmm. but, and the truth is I want to heal those. I want to fill that God-shaped hole in your heart, right? Yeah. One of the times that I was crying out to the Lord, I forgot what I was processing with him. I forgot what incident it was. And I got so mad because I was mad that I was going to have to forgive her. And I said, you saw what she did. You know how she was. That's mm -hmm. just no. I don't hear audible words, but I just feel a download. I hear a download in my spirit. And he's like, I did see. And I am heartbroken. Mm -hmm. I am so sorry mm -hmm. about what she did. Yeah. So he didn't fix what had happened, yeah. but he let me know. He heard me. He saw me. It was yeah. not right. Mm -hmm. And then he was ready to heal that. If I would give it to him, he was ready mm -hmm. to heal that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a willingness to, to expose but, ourselves to the Lord as well. Absolutely. And you know, that's where the scripture, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right. And that's, you know, like that is, you know, like forgiveness, for example, like that's such a, a difficult concept for someone who's been abused, but forgiveness is actually a gift we give ourselves, right? If we can give up that pain, if we can give up the right to get revenge, we are the ones that get freedom, right? Amen. We get that freedom. Amen. Amen. And it seems like too, for me, when I laid down the argument, then I could hear what God was trying to say. Then I could understand what God wanted to do and to bring me into that place of healing. But I do think it's important to 
to process. Like I wouldn't rush the hard questions. I wouldn't rush the process that you have to go through to get to healing, but I would say, don't miss it when it shows up. And that would be when your inability to heal your situation, your inability to change where you happen to be collides with God's sovereignty. That's where I laid down my argument. I laid down my rights because I did have rights. I had rights. Yeah. But when I laid them down, that was the difference for me. Do you want to be right and miserable or do you want to give it up and have peace? Right. Healing that healing. Is there anything that I have not already asked you about that our listeners need to know before we close? To emphasize God will use all things if we let him. And that the other piece would be male sexual abuse is very prevalent. And we need to we need to change culture. Research shows that men don't talk about things that they don't hear other men talking about. So we need to make it safe for men to come forward. We need to we need to, you know, blast through those stupid masculine biases can't expect our husbands to be loving and supportive and tough and stuff their emotions that just doesn't go together god made men with all the same emotions women have we have to allow them to express those and not you know mock them or look at them as being less than a man if they have them yeah that's good takes incredible courage for a man to come forward. It really does. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. How deeply I appreciate you and your time and your expertise. And I'm just praying that this gives somebody the courage to to step into freedom, step into healing, step into peace. Yeah. Whoever needs the message, let them receive it. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.